Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Creative people, how they do their thing, how they keep it going. That's what I love to talk about. Today my guest is someone I've been an admirer of for a very long time. Singer-songwriter and actor Levi Kreiss. Um, He's had a number of albums over the years. Um, My first one that I fell in love with was called One of the Ones. Um, He was also on Broadway in Million Dollar Quartet, playing Jerry Lee Lewis, for which he won a Tony Award. Um, He's got a series of virtual concerts coming up, one in September, one in October, one in November, that we're going to talk about. And he also has a brand new EP out called Bad Habit. Um, But before we get to the interview, I want to get a mention in for You Don't Know My Life, virtual game nights. We're still doing them as the summer comes to an end and people are indoors and you're looking for ways to connect with people, this is a great way to do it. So check it out online at youdon'tknowmylife.com, and I will be your host. We get to hang out. See? How fun will that be? All right. Without any further ado, here is Levi Kreis. Joining me now via Zoom from Knoxville, Tennessee, it's Levi Kreis. Hello, Levi. Dennis, my I can't long believe lost we're LA like person. This. I know, man. This is this is just the best idea that uh, that anybody's had in about a very long time to reconnect with you. How wow. are you? I'm so happy to see you. I've been watching your um, is it three song Sundays where you come in and do three wonderful songs on Facebook. I've been yeah. I've been enjoying your your appearances on Facebook. I, I remember buying the one album that I didn't already own. And so I've just had a little bit, you've been around in my quarantine, even though uh, we haven't spoken or, uh, or seen each other. But yeah, you've been part of the soundtrack of my quarantine and helping me stay sane. Isn't it crazy, though? I mean, just this time we're going through, it's, it's you know, and, and even with the music and the acting, it's like, I'm glad there's a lot of people doing stuff online because I don't think other, I mean, I get a lot of comfort from seeing other people do their thing in the middle of my living room when I can't go anywhere, too. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's just an unusual experience of connecting right now. Yeah. It really is. And it, it does brighten your day. It's like you get a three song hit, you get some fun stories. You're like, oh, I love that song. I'm so glad he did that one. And then, you know, and then you're on, oh, with, right your, on. You're on with your day of, um, you know, existential angst. But you give us a little <laughs> break in the middle. Um, but you're taking it up a notch because you have some virtual concerts coming up. I'm um, really excited about this. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing, uh, I have been doing uh, Facebook Lives every week ever since they announced the shutdown. And for me, it was not just a way for me to reach out and hopefully give a, a nice little distraction for people, but it was also like, I need to do what I do. Right. You know, I, I need that outlet. And so at this point, you know, along the way, the the, the sound gets better, the, the lighting gets a little better. And, and then you begin to think to yourself, wow, this could be a regular staple once a month. Uh, have a full concert and just do the best you can right now with the with the production and you know try to up everything a little bit and make it a nice intimate experience exclusive to those who buy a ticket and come to my website to watch it and and um we launched the first uh the first concert september 20th so it's your first one and they're, you're gonna do three one a month right for the next few months yeah, this fall concert series is uh, three shows, obviously September, October, and November, but it's leading up to what is in the works right now. I'm hoping a very special holiday uh, virtual concert that uh, I'm coordinating with another theater that I might 
be able to pull that off. Nothing to announce yet for that. But, right. but this is a nice ramp up to the to the holiday. The Home for the Holidays tour has been like my busiest time of the year ever since I started that tour four years ago. So yeah, it's a pretty I special I, time. I think I saw you do a show in North Hollywood uh, not too long ago in a theater that is no longer there. And I remember saying hello afterwards and I took my friend Rebecca and it was just you and a piano. But I don't know if it was... I don't think it was the holidays yet. It was it was other right. stuff. But right. um, you're like the gay Mariah Carey with the Christmas thing. You're Mr. <laughs> Christmas, right? Yeah, that's my goal. That's your goal. <laughs> so for these virtual concerts, are you going to be on your own? Or are you going to bring other players in? How do you manage that? Right now I'm going to stay on my own. I, yeah. I'm going to uh, and, and just kind of bring in the intimate flavor that we've been doing. People love the backstory to these songs. Yes. And it's sort of fun for me because I'm in the middle of writing a book about, uh, about my crazy life. And I'm remembering a lot of very unconventional circumstances that informed a lot of songs, a lot of sordid relationships. Right. Um, love triangles and all sorts of stuff that uh that uh i haven't thought about in a while and so it's kind of nice to share those in the context of performing the song intimately but uh yeah it just it seems to be something that everybody kind of wants so i'm just going to leave it at that for for this year and gosh how great would it be to think about expanding that into you know getting the full band here once i can actually be with people yeah well i definitely plan to come to the concert and i may or may not wear pants so you don't have to. Don't have I may to, not either. You don't. That's the you thing. shouldn't either. That should be your thing. Um, so you have a new EP out. It's called Bad Habit. Uh, yes, sir. I really love it. Um, the title track you write about addiction, which is something you've uh, experienced and and overcome. And what was it like to like? Okay, I'm going to write about this in this way for this project. Well, it's interesting that it took me 11 years of sobriety to talk about my drug addiction. And specifically, I had a meth issue, a crystal meth issue. And, and you know, it's not a glamorous thing. You know, I think people like to, you know, people who might be more inclined to talk about addiction like their sexy drugs, you know, like, oh, well, I, not, not that any drug is sexy, but obviously, you know, ha having a cute, cocaine problem is much easier for me to talk about than to say I was a meth user, well, you know, cocaine for is, me personally. Cocaine you know? is more glamorous. It is. You think of Scarface it and is. you think of the 80s and those movies and people go, go, going and achieving. Meth, yeah. you think of, that's the boogeyman, man. There's no... It's just too scary. It's it's a tough thing to come back from too, and and especially right now. I think one of the things that's really hitting my nerve right now is the mental uh, strain that all of us are going through with this pandemic and being able to stay home. And I know people like me who are like, you know, uh, scrounging for the next Zoom meeting, uh, AA meeting, or, or like dealing with their own demons. Right now, people don't want to talk about it, I guess. Maybe they do. Maybe some people are. I'm not hearing a lot of people talk about it as much as they should. But there are a lot of people who are dealing with addictions and alcoholism and depression and anxiety uh, that generally have a real issue with it, that it's like, it's magnified times 10 right yeah, now. Yeah, and you can't go to a meeting and see people in person. You don't yeah. feel like you have the same community. So so for me, the timing was important, right? Because if I can like pump that video into people's Facebook feed and remind them right now when they may not be around anyone, 
to be like, yo, you're not alone. I mean, we get better. Yeah, that's awesome. In the video, you, you know, it, you kind of show the lifestyle and like, you know, going and scoring and all that stuff. What was it like to shoot? Was it like deja vu in a way? Or were you like, did you, did you use your experience to inform the details and what it looks and feels like? I went in a little too confident because I thought to myself, you know, 11 years is... Yeah, a, I got is, this. I got, I got this. It's like, I, I mean, this is a long... 11 years is a long time. It's yeah. like, but but I think once you, you know, especially as, as an actor, I try to find the rawest nerve I can find and I found it easily. And I, and I realized... <laughs> Wasn't that hard that, like, to find, actually? <laughs> right, exactly. That that pain body is still in there, you yeah. know, and, and, and to trigger that and go through a scenario, which there's a very similar scenario that I actually remember that I went through that the video is sort of reflected after. Um, yeah, that wasn't fun. But I mean, I was really grateful to be out of it afterwards. Right. Where you could rap and go, OK, that's a wrap. That's enough. that's enough. Where did you shoot it there in Knoxville? No, uh, we went to a location in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, it's a very talented guy uh, named uh, Corey Endolino, who is creating some really interesting music videos. And he's a storyteller, and it comes natural to him. And and uh, it was my first video with him. We're actually shooting another video together this Saturday. Ooh, for, for which song? For the song "Tell Me Twice." Oh yeah, and I love that one. It's 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 a it's it's sort of like a, if I am your first call on call maintenance man then this beverly hills housewives is having an affair with me the maintenance man uh and her husband gets curious about it until towards the end of the video his you know, tv breaks he calls my business card i come over and he begins to realize like well maybe maybe he's missing out on the action so then he's coming out of the bedroom all disheveled <laughs> so. wow so you flip the script it's almost a little falwell-esque with the Jerry Falwell love triangle. Um, oh, yeah. Great reference, Dennis. Thank you. Very up to the minute, right? You're the, yes. In this scenario, you're the pool boy. Or, <laughs> yeah. But, so, but we're going we're gonna to throw it back to the 80s, though. I mean, yeah. everything's really retro, and it's going to look like it was shot on VHS. And, you know, the, the EP needs that kind of light, lightheartedness because, you know, Bad Habit is right in the middle of the five songs. Yeah. And truly, the rest of the other songs are, besides Standing Tall being generally inspiring, the other songs are just fun. Yeah. You know, they're just really danceable, lighthearted stuff, which I really wanted to, I needed the break. Yeah. I'm so a little too rife with imports sometimes, I think. I love it. So you're going to shoot this fun video. There's a real housewife type that you have a liaison with. Have you thought about how to shoot something like that during this time? Like, it's going to be a challenge, I think. Yeah, well, um, we, we, you know, I mean, of course, we're, we're, we're going, we're following protocol with everything. Right. But the cool thing about it is the way we've laid out the shots is that we we're not ever actually doing anything together. Nobody's right. kissing each other. Nobody's like, it's like her shot coming out of the bedroom my shot coming out of the bed resting my tool belt it's like right. you know nice. it's, like, it's like everything can be done very uh right. very separated the entire the entire shoot can be so that's what that's how we've sort of talked through it and planned it who's playing the housewife a, a, a local actor here i love it yeah, we're using we're we're reaching out to the theater companies here in my town and uh working with a couple of actors from the local theater. I love it. You yeah. have a cover of George Michael's Faith on this EP that is so What do you winning. think about that? I love it. 
I love it. I was playing it awesome. in the kitchen and my roommate was listening. And you know that thing where you're like, I know this song, but it isn't, doesn't sound like I know. What is this song? I know every word. You know that thing where you're, you're, it's familiar, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. not you can't put your finger on it? And then when the yeah. chorus started, she was like, oh, my God, I love this even better than the original. I think it's fun. I love hearing that. Feel. You know, when, when I first put that out, I'll tell you, though, Dennis, I got of of all the videos that have come out so far from that EP. Three words was the first single. Faith was the second. Faith got a lot of hate. Really? A lot of hate. And I think it's maybe there's just purists or what. George but like purists that felt like you. I, I don't know. I mean, just in generally speaking, just people saying it's a shitty rendition. I mean, like, for some reason, that video got such a huge mix of uh, of responses. So I'm glad it works for you because if I it like works it. for you and your friend, you know what? You have a more of it's a, good. I consider you having a greater authority in pun music than some of these Thank Facebook you. commenters sometimes. So. Exactly. What what made you want to do that song? Were you a fan of George Michael or you you sort of like that it had a kind of spiritual, it was sort of in your wheelhouse thematically or what, what well, appealed to you? He, he represents a lot of what I try to keep top of mind for myself, right? Because I mean, he's this, he, you know, he's such a soulful interpreter right. and uh, of song, and and uh, also just kind of what he represents in some ways. I, I, he, I don't know. He's just always been kind of up there as 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 idol for me. And I knew I wanted to do a cover. And I'm like, how can I communicate to people the kind of product that I'm trying to in this rebranding, relaunching period? Like, what is a really easy reference point for people to say, oh, okay, right. I get it. This guy is reminiscent of this guy. This is this is kind of what I was hoping to accomplish right. with it. I hope, I hope it did. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's really fun. And I, I'm just, I was a huge uh, George Michael fan. When you were starting out in music and, and pursuing wanting to be an artist and stuff, did you ever think you'd have to be as entrepreneurial as musicians have to be now? Oh, my God. Well, because it's really an all hands on deck kind of I'm going to do this. I'm going to mail. I have to know. I have to know about merchandise. I have to know about you have to do everything right. No, I don't think that there's any way of knowing that. And I think a lot of people who are sitting at our age uh, group, uh, like we have had to adapt. We Gen Xers have the most remarkable ability to adapt because from the very beginning of us making money, we had to adapt, adapt, adapt to constantly changing technology. And I think that actually takes us to a place now where I am more excited about the potential to reach new ears, new eyes, new fans, now than ever before, because there is no red tape. If you understand marketing, if you, I mean, I've been taking brand new classes 20 to 25 hours a week since May on this brand new music marketing. And I I have seen my world begin to completely shift already, uh, even though it's just sort of starting. So like, to me, I'm excited about the fact that I'm getting, like, if you look at the comments of the Bad Habit music video, which is right there on my Facebook page, pinned at the top, the majority of people in that thread had never heard of me before. But I found a way to put my music in front of people who never knew I existed. And I'm building new awareness and new fans by techniques that like, if you want, if you want to sit down and do the work and learn it, there is absolutely nothing to hold you back, and and that to me is something we never had until this point. Yeah, but 
but you also seem to have the kind of personality that's willing to do that to learn something oh, new, to jump in yeah you, you're not like well i'm just a musician i don't know about technology or you know what i mean i'm an artist and that's all i want to be you have yeah. the ability and the curiosity and the willingness to like okay well this is what i need to do i'm gonna get into it and and love it and embrace it I just still have a passion. I don't understand when this is going to die, but I kind of wish that it would because <laughs> it's, it's like, but like, I'm just, I am driven on pure passion and adrenaline still. And, you know, you, you know, I've been doing music as my livelihood since for 15 years. Yeah. Um, it's interesting what you said about Gen X, because I'm in a similar place in terms of writing. Like I had my, breakthrough during magazines and I got to have that whole experience and then it sort of went away but I'm not old enough to retire I still I'm like oh there's a moment of like I gotta figure this out yeah that that thing that I did is gone yes 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 well and there and there's there's a huge there is a huge poison that a poisonous cloud, if I may be so dramatic, that hangs over Los Angeles. I lived there for many, many years. <laughs> and that is the the ageism. And, and people are missing out. And I didn't get this until I left LA. But it's like, people don't realize that if you're growing in what you do, and you're better than you were 15 years ago, and you're smarter about how you work it, like it literally gets better. It's like, it doesn't matter if entertainment industry or journalism, wherever you are, is like having their judgments about ageism because frankly, that ends once you leave the borders of Los Angeles. The rest of the world don't think that way. That's they do not think know. that way. That's really the, the, good no, that is absolutely the most irrelevant conversation outside of Hollywood. Yeah. Interesting. So nobody maybe, cares. Yeah. Nobody cares. People just want to feel something. Right. They just want to they just want to do their thing. But aren't you glad that you got to have the parts of the business that aren't really there anymore that you really got to have physical CDs that you got to sign them and you got to that you oh, have yeah. that you got to experience life before streaming. That you know well, what that was. The thing is like. that's not over. I mean right. I mean people but I'm 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 People buy CDs. You I mean, sent one to really... me not long ago because I had to. Right, and I love that. That was so. That was so yeah. sweet. Thank you. Yeah, people really do. I mean, because and granted, it's more. It's it's less of a necessity and more of a novelty, yeah. right? I came to the, I came to the home for the holidays tour. I walked away with a signed holiday CD, a personalized message. That's that's a keepsake nowadays, but people still want them. I think, especially with our age group. We're, we're more inclined to than, you know, I mean, I have, I have a lot of fans that are in their 20s from the Vampire Diaries. And, of course, they're never going to buy a CD, <laughs> you know. But, 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 they, but they'll click but again, like. They'll give you a heart on some, a tweet. They will. They will. For sure. <laughs> um, what, what's, what music did you have on Vampire Diaries? I Should Go was used on the season two finale, like almost in its entirety. And it garnered all of these new fans that like literally if you look at my Spotify analytics at this point it's like 18 to 25 year old females right primarily because of the Vampire Diaries and that song was also a big breakout for you on a on a soap opera right and that was the first place it showed up yeah. was Days of Our Lives yeah, yeah. it's such yeah. a good song it's from your album One of the Ones which is one of my favorites and you tell the story about how you like 
basically had hardly any money when you made it. You had enough yeah. money to record, to do like one take of these songs. Like, uh, yeah, it's such a great album, one of my favorites, and really a shoestring situation, right? Well, I had been through, as I counted at that point, eight major record labels, and oh my god, the the majority of the circumstances uh, somehow weighed in that my being out was not accommodating to the marketing vision or the vision of the record label. And these were open conversations that I actually had with the labels. I mean, post signing with Atlantic records. Uh, and, and it was, I, I wasn't out at first because at that point I had gone through several other labels and it wasn't working out for me. So my last major label in 2004, right before the album we we're talking about, I was like, well, I'm not going to tell anybody this time. Well, they found out by getting into my laptop and finding some, <clears throat> finding some, a voice memo that I was sending to a guy that I was dating and they thought it was a song t- a song demo like so whatever the whatever the reasoning was they were snooping they found out what they were curious about and about two months after that things went down the tubes because things what, what an invasion though to to that they sort of yeah 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 but gosh yeah. i mean i do think back in terms of my own work less because i wasn't a performer and stuff but like feeling like how out should i be can i be out like yeah. all of those questions, all the energy that that takes to manage. Sure. When you could be putting it into other things, being creative or, or yeah. whatever. And uh, yeah, I don't miss the mm-hmm. bandwidth spent trying mm-hmm. to navigate. I don't. I think that's why that album, you know, was, is, was so freeing for me, the debut album. I mean, yes, I spent, I, 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 I spent $200 playing that album one take from song one to song eight and uh, got out of there. I don't know how he allowed me just to come in there and do that. But uh, the, the thing was, those songs were written about boys that I had loved, that I had crushed on, that I'd been in relationships with. And I think that at that time, there wasn't a lot of us speaking so intimately uh, to our relationships out loud. And so I found my home uh, with my community when I found my authentic voice. And it's just that it's funny that that album ends up being used for vampire diaries and other things, because, you know, looking at it, it created itself so specific to, right. to, to my situation. Right. But the emotions are, are universal. And also you could, the, the feeling is there. You feel the, the honesty and, and that's why it yeah. probably works for these shows and, and uh, why people probably love it so much. Was it, Having all those deals fall through, was that just, did you feel like you were just getting the crap kicked out of you? What was that like? I mean, for me, it just goes into the whole pot of, like, for example, being gay bashed uh, in Hamilton Park, New Jersey, with a brick to the back of my head and my head cut open, or conversion therapy for six years, or how about being walked off of my campus when they found out that I was gay and the board of directors of the college deliberated on whether or not to kick me out of college and make an example of me because I had a Christian record deal at the time and was very public in my faith. So, I mean, this was my theme. Holy this was my theme for, for this whole period of my life, like being denied education for being gay, being denied employment for being gay, uh, like all, all of the stuff that I, I guess nowadays is not interesting to people. Uh, does that journey matter 
now. I, I don't know, but it's certainly I think informed so. my I think work. People still relate to it, and I think it's important for people who live in a a world that seems more open to know that it wasn't that long ago that this stuff was happening. I mean, I last week I interviewed, or a couple of weeks ago I interviewed Tyler Glenn from Neon Trees, and yeah, he was raised Mormon like I was, and he was talking about going to Congress to to talk about conversion therapy and the dangers of it. It's still something that's that's in there. I didn't know the story about your college, where you got uh, they they didn't. <laughs> They didn't want you to, to go there because you were gay. Uh, all, all, the, all this is, is, is stuff I'm reliving right now, writing this book. I, right. I, had, I was finishing my six years, sixth year of conversion therapy upon my second year of college. So I actually started conversion therapy behind my mom and dad's back in eighth grade really? because I knew that I wanted to be a Christian artist at the time. And I knew that this thorn in my side, as Paul would say, was, was something that I had to get rid of. And uh, I was in my dorm room. Uh, I won't name the college, though people who know, know, but I try not to attach this story anymore to the college because sure. there's a great redeeming story afterwards I'll try to touch on super quickly. Yeah, no, but, go for it. But, uh, but I was in my dorm room with three different translations of the scripture and the Strong's Concordance to look up the original Greek and Hebrew right. of each one. And I was, I was really, had spent uh, several months really realizing that there was actually nothing so accurately representing God's disapproval of of just loving another man. Uh, and so I, I hadn't really confided in anyone outside of my support groups in Exodus International, right? right? But, but my roommate came in one day and he said, what are you studying about? And I had this moment of confiding in him. The following day, he went to the Baptist Student Union of the college and he requested prayer for me, which, you know, in good Southern terms means I've got a dish, I have to tell you. Yeah. Well, the Baptist Student Union went to the board of directors of the college and they began to spend time deliberating on whether or not to kick me out of college. I was sort of at the forefront of the Christian ensemble and a lot of other Christian organizations. And at the same time, I had scored a really great record deal with a major gospel record label. Right. So that, and, and so an intern at the label went to, to this college as well. The same week tells the label what's going on. And I am immediately outed to the campus, which was devastating to me. I was, it was like the scandal on campus. And uh, of course the record label guy met with me and said, well, you know, we can't follow through with this album. Um, we can't release this. Um, and, and, and by the end of the semester, they let me finish out my non-religious subjects. Um, but I was not able to finish the ones that were religious. And then I, I didn't go back afterwards. Wow. But you said but, there was a redeeming part. Uh, well, in 2017, I had an album where I was doing sort of my own singer-songwriter singer -songwriter interpretation of some of our favorite Broadway classics. Right. And uh, that was a like a hefty tour. It was a lot of fun. And I said, you know what? I want to go back and get my degree because I deserve that. You know, I think it was in the energy of leaving New York City and coming back here. I, I claimed my territory. I was like, wait a minute, you know, all of us are sort of orphans that run away from our uh, intolerant small towns and our families who don't accept who we are. 
But we never go back and, and, and restake our flag and say, wait a minute, this is my culture. This is my territory. That's my degree. Right. I refuse to not have it. And I will be your educator if I need to teach you how to love regardless of your prejudice. And so I, I decided I'm going back to school. There was no honorary degree. This is a Reba McIntyre song, by the way. I believe this is a Reba <laughs> McIntyre song. I'm going to go back to school. Okay, you're going back to school. Is there life out, out there? there? Exactly. That's your end of your concert. You come out with the gowns. Everyone's, there's not a dryer in the house. Seven wardrobe changes. Exactly. Yeah. The taxi sure. on the stage. Okay. <laughs> no, so it was, so I said, look, I'll finish the classes, but I have to do my senior recital. I talked them into allowing my tour to be my senior recital. And I remember going out, like right before going out on stage, one of the professors that was there during the entire time years ago when all this happened, came up to me and he says, well, I, I can report to you that I'm giving you a pass, uh, an A on your, your senior recital, even though you haven't hit the stage yet. And then he got teary-eyed and he said, and I want you to know that on behalf of all of the, 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 uh, the faculty, and we've talked about it over and over, like I just want you to know that we're very sorry of everything that happened. And then there was such a genuine moment there. And I went out on stage and did my show with years of resentment, like sort of just dissipated in that apology. And I felt like, yeah, I did. I deserve this. And this is, and I'm glad I came back to have this. And I don't need to be mm, about it. I can be graceful about it. It was like when I, Vanessa Williams I can be a Miss class America. act about it. Absolutely. And you know, but you know what was so cute was the minute I started into my first song in the back of the auditorium, I heard this, what I, I now know him because he was in my master class at the college, 18 years old, 19 years old, musical theater queen, who's like, yes, queen. <laughs> <laughs> like right when I came out a stage and I'm like, wow, what a different what a different time we live right. in to where, like, it so doesn't matter. He feels like generation. he can be that way. He feels like he can do that. And it was just, like, the most touching moment for me because, like, how different from when I was last on that stage years ago before. But also, you know, I mentioned that it reminded me a little of Miss America and Vanessa Williams, how they sort of kissed her ass and apologized uh -huh. for the way they treated her. And she went back and was very gracious. Yeah. Yeah. But also success is sort of, you know, you've really made something of yourself. Like, I'm sure that they were, like, happy to, happy, happy, proud of what you'd created. And what am I trying to say? It's well, no, like, I think that has something to do with it. Because it, it was, it was post-Tony Awards yes, that, won the I, that they They're like, that they, they won, that's our guy. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's they, our they boy. Were... Oh, wait, we shit all over him. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah, the, the musical theater department came to see the show while I was still in it. Right. And asked We're talking me to about do a Million Dollar Quartet. Yes, yes, Million Dollar Quartet. And, uh, and um, they asked me to do a Q&A with the students after the show. And I sat there and told the students the entire history of Mia wow. Belmont. And I let them know. Were you in and the actual theater when you did the Q&A? Sitting on the edge of the stage of Nederlander. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been delicious. Well, you know, I'm not one to want to like really make points beyond making the point. 
but there was just a little special sauce to that moment that, yes. <laughs> that felt good. You know? Well, and also you were probably looking out at people that were like you back then and making a difference. Listen, for them. absolutely. Who knows? I mean, like these these kids are still from small towns. I yeah. mean, people don't realize that there still are kids who need to be told it's okay. You know, we get, we were so used to being in our urban areas where everybody just kind of lands when they realize it, but that's not where some of these kids are from. And this message is still very relevant to small town America. I'm amazed that you started conversion therapy in eighth grade when you, you said eighth grade, that you had the awareness that you were like, I didn't quite know what was going on at that age. I wouldn't have, you know what I mean? But you, you were like, Oh this is who I am, and this is... Oh, no, I like knew. Were... I knew at a very young age. I had the... I think probably by eight or nine, I had the biggest crush on one of my brother's best friends. Yeah. And you you, you not only put it all together, but then realize, oh, I need to try to do something about this because it's not accepted. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just yeah. that... I, I can't imagine that level of uh, cognizance at that age. Well, it's because we. I grew up really quickly. I mean, yeah. by the time that I was 12, my mom had me touring a different church every weekend. You know, I had a full length album by 15. I was talking to publishing companies as a songwriter by 16. So I was very clear about being in the the gospel music industry at the youngest of ages. And so, you know, you just sort of like deduct from there. Right. Well, this is not going to work in this, in this business plan. This is a big (laughs) problem. Yeah. This is a big problem. Yeah. Uh, Talk to me about million dollar quartet. Well, you play Jerry Lee Lewis in, in the show. Yes. And uh-huh. did it start on Broadway or did it start somewhere else and go to Broadway? What was that journey? It started at the Cornet Theater in Los Angeles. Matter thought. of fact, I had, see, I, I have, I have a, like, I have a lot of new works on my resume and, and, and I love new works. I love developing new musical theater uh works and the first show that i started developing was a show called one red flower which was written and directed by emmy award winner paris barclay right and it was which you know him a beautiful story about five guys in their one-year tour of duty in vietnam and we workshopped that at, uh, at the village theater outside of seattle and then we workshopped it at the kennedy center and then we workshopped it at north shore music theater until we were finally lined up for a theater on broadway and we couldn't believe it this was going to be our broadway debut and a month prior 9-11 happened oh my god and the producers couldn't come to terms with with the kind of story that that was being anything that we could possibly t- you know see right. right now right so the same producers who were behind one red flower months later we all came back to LA and they said well we got this new script um this new story and and we love what you do with southern characters but uh we need somebody who kind of plays the piano a little bit and we heard that you do i mean do you want to come and do a table read well I mean, little did they know that Jerry Lee Lewis was my family reunion party trick growing up, right? I mean, so I never auditioned for the role again. I mean, that workshop, that table read led to another Los Angeles workshop, led to a Seattle workshop. And then we sat in Chicago for a year, really honing the script, trying to get as much book as we could out of the story until finally we... we, I, I did have my Broadway debut with Million Dollar Quartet. That was amazing. Yeah. What what is it about Jerry Lee Lewis apart from the music that you connected to? I mean, he I mean, he is my culture. He is everything that my mother would throw at me growing up from her records. Right. His DNA, everything from his 
cousins, Mickey Gilly and Jimmy Swagger, and the kind of knowledge that I have in my bones about who he is and just doing him as a kid, like learning his, I, I mean, like, it, it's, it's, it's crazy that all the work that I have loved doing as an actor, and it's the thing that is literally, I would say, like a throwaway <laughs> because right. it's just such a part of my history and how I've grown up. Right. Turns out being the 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 vehicle, like that that has to be synchronicity. Yeah, no, it feels like there's some grace around it all. You know, the way it came yeah. into your life and, and all of that And you stuff. know what? I think that it's also, like you said, grace. The universe has to balance itself out. And and knowing my story as a musician and, and everything that I had gone through with the record labels and just the injustice in my, you know, that I would shake my fist to heaven and, you know, I mean, how many times have I thrown myself into the floor and crying, why, God, why? Right. Why will this music thing not work out? Right. And so, I, felt, I mean, I, I mean with, the, with the countless close calls. And, uh, yeah, maybe it was just the universe balancing the scales a little bit when it came to the effort I had been putting in for so long without any reward. I don't know. Right. What's, what's a favorite memory of Tony Knight? Leaving Radio City Music Hall and losing sight of my husband, and then people begin to sort of like mob you, and right. I'm this, and I'm and I'm seeing this now in that moment at a level that I had never seen it before, and I lose him, and he's got my phone and my Tony, and out uh, like. Five minutes goes by. I'm looking 10 minutes, 30, 40 minutes later, I'm asking like stage managers that I know from other shows. Like, do you, can you, like, can you call my stage manager who has my phone number, who can call my phone, hoping that my husband will answer it so I can find him. He had thought I had been, I would meet him at the after party. So he's walking around the city with my Tony award while people are saying, congratulations, congratulations. congratulations." Right. Meanwhile, you feel like a kid lost at Disneyland. (laughs) Right, exactly. And there's someone who snapped the most perfect picture of him walking right up and seeing me and him sitting there smiling, holding my Tony or to me just looking at him with all the relief in the world. Right. Like, oh, thank God. Right. The actual award, if you go like this, does it spin? It does. It does. Do people want to spin it when they see it? I feel like I would want to make sure it spun. Well, I don't walk around showing it to people. <laughs> but you made sure and, it spins. And I don't want I don't want your fingerprints on it. Yes, I don't exactly. <laughs> we don't want to put your grubby hands on it. Um after that, is there this feeling of like what do you do next or how do I what is it what's the next move like when, when something yeah, that big has happened? It took me a minute because there was so you know, it, it's so gr- that that year was so grueling. And I had ended my contract with yet my third ACL tear. So I immediately had to leave the show and go into surgery and sit around and heal. Where, your ACL and is part of your leg, right? Or your... It's the two bands behind your knee that hold stable, yeah. right? Ooh, and okay. so in uh, every, the first time I did my ACL was the, the finale of Million Dollar Quartet in Seattle. The second ACL tear was the finale of Million Dollar Quartet in Chicago. And the third one was rehabbing my leg uh, 
a week before my contract was up on Broadway. And so, you know, for me, there was some momentum that was kind of lost there in that moment because I had to go back to the same doctor, had to come back to LA, find that doctor, go through the whole process, and which is, you know, five times slower because it's workers' comp. And it's like, you know, I spent the year making Imagine Paradise, um, which is very LGBT driven and right. probably the the most LGBT centric album that I've done. And it celebrates all that we are and our history. And uh, it does it in a way that borrows from a lot of the musical influences that were popular during the time of our greatest activism. Um, but it took me a minute to stop and think, you know, at that time, they, you know, they throw other roles at you. Can right. you want to do this? Um, do you want to do this? But I think of Del Dickey um, and, uh, you know, Del Dickey, the yeah, actress. She, she yeah, I Del think of her because. She did the podcast together. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, her yeah. journey as like to, to becoming a successful working actor the road was so long. I remember crying during that interview because it was so moving yeah, yeah. to hear her talk well, about she, it. She, she's been a huge inspiration for me. And, and like we, I remember us having a conversation one time that basically says, keep loving the roles that you're doing. And so there, I realized there were a lot of stuff that came to me within that year uh, and the next two that, that, were, that were, you know, okay, and there's a lot of okay stuff that actually even gets to Broadway, but nothing that I fell in love with until Violet. Yeah. And, and uh, with, when, with the revival of Violet and Sutton Foster. So I just, I went back to music. I mean, at that point I hadn't made a record in oh, two years, three yeah. years. Because unlike a lot of people, I would think on Broadway who are Broadway musical theater, that was their track from the get-go. You've, also, you've gone these different directions with gospel uh-huh. and also your own singer-songwriter thing. So it, it was part of yeah. a buffet of stuff that you do. Um, I'm not in a hurry. And that's the difference, I think, with a lot of other people that would have been in my position. I, if I went back, would I totally may, uh, like, like just take advantage of the situation a little more than I did and not be, not try to be you know, have a, have a pace and thoughtfulness to where I go from there. Probably, maybe I would. I don't know. I don't have any regrets in that regard. I don't think anything really, really changed regardless, other than just, you know, the choice to have panic and the choice to trust the universe that right. everything's in order. But, but um, I, I'm just not in a hurry. This, I mean, I'm going to be creating roles I, for the next 20 years. So yeah. I, I'm not, I, I don't, there's no, des- there's no desperation around it, right? Right. I don't, I've never subscribed to the idea that you have one blip and if you don't maximize that moment, then there's nothing else because yeah. I just don't believe in the scarcity of the universe like that. Right. That, that there's more going on than that. Do, because it was such an iconic role and the piano playing was such a part of it, do, do you feel like people sometimes need to have a hard time seeing you separate from that? Like just as an actor that can do all kinds of different stuff? Do you know what I'm saying? Well, I guess after the fact, but not prior to, yeah. right? I mean, because there's a, a, a nice little smattering of variety of stuff that, I mean, some of my favorite roles were roles I've developed in new works that nobody have ever seen from from Jack the Ripper in, a, in the most recent new work I've been a part of called Get Jack. 
which is a fucking ride to play that. This East Londoner. I mean, like, no one would expect me in this role. Right. And it was just so super satisfying to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, I just think I'm still going to keep finding really interesting stuff to invest in. And, you know, they'll always keep popping to the surface. The best will rise, you know? Yeah. Talk to me about the journey from somebody who had religion and spirituality is a big part of their upbringing. It took a toll because of the gay stuff coming around to your own kind of a spirituality thing. Cause, cause it, I think it would be a possibility that you just discard all of that. It was such, it was, it was so challenging early on that I, I'm going to not even, I don't even going to go near that aisle in the bookstore. I don't want to know about any of that stuff. So where did you, how did you come around to where you are now? Where you're able to I love, sort of... I, I love the way that you articulated that, too. That, that's, that's so... That's just such a, a perfect description. I don't even want to go through that aisle in the bookstore. Right. And I have... But I would think it's a journey to get to where, like, okay, I, that wasn't right, but I feel a longing for something that feels connected. How do I find that? I have every right to be angry and confrontational for the rest of my life when it comes to organized religion. Yeah. Um, But that only creates a hell for myself. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a very fun life, you know? No, not at all, not at all. Well, a lot of what I now prescribe, uh, subscribe subscribe to, prescribe to, uh, spiritually, had to do with coming with a sort of part of getting sober too. Um, I had uh, already been uh, that, that theater that you mentioned earlier in the, in this episode uh, was uh, run by a gentleman named James Mellon, who yes, the is, theater where you performed in Hollywood. Yes. Right. So he's a reverend of new thought, right. new thought, metaphysics, uh, sort of the school of, you know, the thought of it, like law of attraction and our thoughts become things. And, and they have a very interesting take on the Bible. They have a purely metaphysical interpretation of the scriptures. Um, and uh, religious science, the science of mind sort of appealed to me because, you know, at that point, not only do I have all this religious history with the church, but then I had this, you know, rich history with Wiccan and finding that at the end of the day, it's really funny because growing up, there was nothing that I couldn't claim in the name of Jesus, and it didn't happen. And as a, as a, as a Wiccan, there was no spell that did not come back fully realized. So what's the commonality here, right? right? There's just a law that responds to the energy of belief. And so if I am in my core fully convinced that I am willing this to happen. The, the, I mean, the universe only knows yes. And so I kind of dove into that so much so that I became a licensed spiritual practitioner with the Centers for Spiritual Living, which is a new thought organization that Reverend James, as he was my, he was my teacher. Oh, that's so interesting. So uh, that's kind of what inspired my podcast, The Church of Christ, because um, it's just one step deeper into those who maybe know a little bit about my journey and want to have a deeper conversation. Right. 
we can dive right into like, look, this is 30 minutes of me pumping you full of positivity. Uh, for those who are really hungry for radical self-improvement, we're going to throw some quick, fun things for you just to check in with me every week and do it with me. You know, I'm real honest about my own struggles during the week and what I'm dealing with. And it's, it's, it's sort of provided now an outlet to accompany the music. I love it. And you, people can find that wherever they get their podcasts. Yes, sir. I love that. Yes, sir. Well done. Um, Will you come on my podcast? We should just, like, I would we should love just, to. we just, just cross over. We could yeah. do a crossover episode. Um, going back to uh, being on Broadway, what did you think of the lifestyle? Going to do the show every night and was it fun and being part of the I don't mind team? it. Was it I love it. Kind of thrilling. I, in a way? I, yeah, I I don't understand. I don't understand these kids who have a problem with eight shows a week and they right. can't show up for their full eight. Right. When I was growing up, it was no question. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm old school about it. I love the smell of the theater. I will be there eight shows a week and never miss a show. Yeah. What was you it know? like the stage door going coming out and signing programs and that moment? It, it was fine. I just, I just appreciate that people appreciate what we're doing. Yeah, I, I would think it's very kind of exciting in a way. Or Otherwise, people... we don't have a job. Yeah, no, it totally, it totally makes sense. You yeah. had a song on So You Think You Can Dance, which is one of my favorite shows, but I can't yeah. remember what that it was. was, or that, was, what my, it that, was. that was my version of Whole Lot of Shaking Going On. Oh, there you go. Yeah, nice. yeah. That was from the soundtrack. Perfect. That's yeah. fun. I'm sure it was too... What's funny about that show is I'm obsessed with it and I'm so into it. And then when it's over, I don't always remember the kids. But for a while there, I, would, I thought they were my own children. Um, so it's crazy. <laughs> well, are you on the World of Dance tip? Because I'm I, obsessed. I am. It's not the same, but I, I'm kind of in it. I like to watch yeah. Jennifer Lopez look. Her be, wardrobe. Be on a camera. <sighs> like, I just, she's like the moon and the sun. I just like to gaze at her. I'm, I'm so with you on this. Yeah. I obsess about every outfit she, she wears every episode. I just think she's, she's like my goddess for sure. She is such a goddess. Like, it's kind of oh. amazing. And 50. 50. And Derek That's Huff what 50 has worked is. out. Derek Huff's worked out a lot and looks really good in those little retro sweater things that he wears. So, yeah, I yeah. kind of like the world of dancing. But So You Think is my real jam. But, um... Yeah. You also had a song which I think became has become probably a more fraught territory. You had a song on The Apprentice, and you kind of had a big yeah. break from The Apprentice. Oh, that was my break. Yeah. I mean, like coming out of Atlantic Records, the producer that I was working with, and I don't, I don't know why on earth he did that. I thought maybe it's because he knew that he would be a shoe in because I don't know, but he submitted me. And his job on the episode was to produce the track. And we had been doing my whole album. So right. he submitted me. And there was thousands of submissions, you know. I mean, they didn't have to take me, but they chose me for the episode. And, and the challenge was to, to write, record, package, and produce an unsigned artist for XM Cafe, for XM Radio. And the winner was going to be introduced to the world. And uh, my team won. And we walked off set with a confidentiality agreement where we're not allowed to talk about it for six months. And that's when I realized that if I could pull an album together, maybe I could sell a few when it aired and make some grocery money. And that's where I went to the studio in New York and it's like, Hey, I got $200. Let me see if I can do it. A friend of mine put up the website and the moment it aired uh, over a thousand went out the window that night, just from the, just from my, 
appearance on, on The Apprentice, and then all of a sudden things just started really happening for me independently. But the funny thing was that whole album and the music that I shared on The Apprentice and on the XM Cafe uh, interviews that followed were these songs about these boys. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so the way that those two came together was... A, was an anomaly it was it was really interesting but but yeah that's that's kind of where it began it was for me not the celebrity apprentice it was regular apprentice regular apprentice right what do you remember about trump did you have anything to do with him no you don't see him like no one i i never saw him on set um he only was there to shoot the scenes that he was you know to shoot and yeah. uh and i think that that kind of i gathered at the time that that kind of mystique was also to kind of keep you know he's not he's i guess looking back at those old episodes he's not overly accessible to anybody because he's like the 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 end all authority that right. says you're fired or not so there's right. this fear right that yeah. he keeps from this absence of you know not being really there or there but uh uh, no, I remember the teams though really well. I mean, hanging out with them was fun. Never saw I never saw Trumpster though. Did you work with both teams, or did one team have you and one team had another? You, you worked with one of the teams. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. But it was so smart of you to have that album ready to go, and it's such a lesson in the power of television. Like, you if somebody's on TV, it it, it moves all these other things around. It's kind of powerful. Yeah, it really. Yeah, this is and, not a and, profound and, and, thought. But it's something I just see played out again and again in different people that I've observed. Well, it's a smart thought to take advantage of the opportunity, right? And yeah. and the thing was, I, w- I had barely any catering shifts to survive. Yeah. And if it wasn't for me reaching out to a friend, uh, Andrew Briskin, uh, who I give all credit to learning how to survive as an independent songwriter and singer-songwriter, and he... He uh, passed away a few years ago, but left this legacy to me, like just his ability to reach out to myself and and help create Debbie Holiday's career. I mean, he yeah. had such a huge part of our life. Um, and he was the one who was like, okay, look, this is going to happen. And you may be singing for only seven minutes, but you have to harness that opportunity. And, you know, humble website, $200 CD, and a place where you can click and buy yeah. And there you go. You're off. Um, we also know Del Shores. You've done a lot of work with Del Shores. Um, he's yeah. been a guest on the podcast. I really admire him. But he had his show Southern Baptist Sissies, and you would go every night and sing this song when it was running. Right? The Stained Glass Window song? Stained Glass Window. Yeah. And you would just go and show up and do your song like while the sh- like for a whole run of a play. Is that right? Well, when I first moved to L.A., I think I was there maybe a month or two, and I, we were walking past the Zephyr Theater with all of my friends from Tennessee and Georgia, and they saw this, you know, big billboard of this guy in underwear with his arms outstretched like a cross, and it says Southern Baptist Sisties, and they were like, well, let's go see that. Let's go see I heard about this fella Dale, and they drug me in. I had no desire to see that. I was like... These people don't know what I've already been through with this issue. Exactly. So, I mean, by intermission, and me and Dale talk about this a lot, I was in the fetal position, bawling my eyes out. I hadn't realized that there were other people 
like me out in this world. And all the context, everything was just so much my story. So long story short, Dell and I met that night. We became very close friends. Uh, he let me see that show as many times as I needed to put the pain of the past behind me, as I say. I think I saw it like maybe 36 times until I was house sitting for him in the living room on his piano and decided I was going to write the song inspired by uh, Benny's monologue. Wow. about the beautiful stained glass window. Yeah. And uh, Dale was just said, you know what, let's let's end our production with that. I mean, we even took that, I even went with them on the road with Southern Baptist Sissies when Delta Burke did the tour with them and they were doing Southern Baptist Sissies and Trailer Trash Housewives at all these different theaters across the country. And I just came along to seeing Stained Glass Window. It's sort of been a, been a, been a part of that SBS world right. from then on. But what I got from that, that story you just told and knowing a little bit about that before is that because it meant so much to you thematically in your life, that there was something cathartic about just coming and, and, and doing that song and you know, that you would, yeah. it wasn't like, I'm going to do it for a week and then you're on your own. It was like, this feeds me in a way, or this is, this heals me in a way. Well, I mean, this. and it literally fed me too, because I mean, at the time I'm, I'm still struggling. I mean, uh, this is before anything that we just previously talked about. And so I would go to Kinko's and I would print my little covers and burn my little CDs and stained glass window was on it. And I would stand outside the theater afterwards and just sell whatever I could to have grocery money. I right. mean, and so, I mean, Dale's always been that way. He's just so maternal to everybody in his family, right? right? And so it, it was an extension of a healing process that was very important for me to face and to go through during that moment in my life. But at the same time, it was also Dell reaching out, giving me an opportunity to survive on my music. Right, that's amazing. Now we met yeah. probably just a little before that. I think it would have been 2001, 2002, something 2000. You reached out to me because I had a record that I'd done my oh. own self, like kind of like we're talking about. And I Which remember I'm having... telling you, I love. I've got. I've. I have to pull that out. I'm absolutely going to make that my listening for the rest of the day. I... It's just been such a long time since I've heard it. Wow, God, me too. I'm a little afraid, but I'm so moved that that you responded to it because we met. I remember. I wrote the... you about that, right? What's that? I wrote you about yeah, the record because I just loved we, it. We met at a coffee bean. Uh, on Coldwater Canyon. I remember. And I, remember. I hadn't heard any of your music or anything, but I think you were also interested in marketing and like how I, because I, I had gotten a little press around it and I think you wanted to just talk about how that happened and all like of that stuff. Like how did you do it? Yeah. yeah. And then I remember listening to your stuff and going, holy shit, you're amazing. Just like, I was just like, this guy is so, so talented. I, I was so flattered about it. But um, that's that would have been like two. My album came out in 2000, so it would have been like, when did you move to L.A.? No, it was 2001, 2002, Yeah, I it think. would have been I'm pretty sure that was about yeah. the time, because by 2004, I, the, the, the Atlantic Records Apprentice story begins. Right, exactly. Yeah. When yeah. did you so move? So it was before I left. When did you move from L.A.? The summer of 2004. Wow, no, the fall of 2003, yeah. Oh, so right, you were only here a little while. Um, well, no, because I moved to L.A. in, in 98, 99. I got you. 99, right. yeah. yeah. All right, right. What was it that made you leave L.A.? Did you have an opportunity somewhere else, or were you sort of done? Uh, it's, 
what made me leave LA? I, well, my first thought is that, you know, I now was with, with somebody who was becoming a part of my life. It was prior to us getting married, but uh, he's an East Coast boy and he loves Chicago and he loves New York. And it was just a different vibe for him. He, uh, and I wanted to be in a place that I knew he felt very happy. Yeah. And, and, you know, granted, we, it took us both a while to figure out where that was. I mean, we had eight different addresses for the first, <laughs> you know, what, eight years of us living together, nine years of us living together, being together. So you guys um, have been, how long have you guys been together? We are 10 years in November. Wow. Fantastic. I love but it. we've only been married two years. Where did you get married? Right here in my small town outside of Knoxville. Oh, I bet it was adorable. I bet it was really wonderful. And I invited everyone, including my fundamental Baptist preacher cousin, who didn't show up. Who didn't show up. It's still a thing <laughs> to some people. Oh, yeah, it still is. I mean, yeah, it was, it was just, it was uh, the cutest. It was the cutest. It wasn't, it wasn't anything big. Yeah. But it was, uh, but it meant a lot because... You know, you know the song like "We're Okay" from the Gospel According to Levi, yeah. and how that's a song to my mother about how the fact that we didn't talk for eighteen months because she couldn't come to terms with this whole lifestyle that I had chosen. And me and my mom, especially, have been through it. So to right. see her come to the wedding and just you know be just in love with my better half um, again—it's a full circle moment, right? It's yeah. it's like. I, you know, I, I could write them off very easily. We could always just, we could just say I, they're not capable of having a relationship, but I have had to be patient. I've had to be their teacher, but I get to be in their lives now. Yeah. Yeah. If you can just keep it, if you can just hang in and keep working through it, you can, you can come out the other side, I guess, in a way. You know what? It takes humility Yeah. because you cannot navigate those waters with ego. Yeah, you just can't because then it's all about you get so annoyed at at the opposition of ideologies and the judgment begins to come in and then you can never see eye to eye because that it becomes so magnified that you emotionally can't get over it. It really does take I, I think that's a beautiful discussion for all of us gays to have like it takes a real special humility to to decide that I am willing to be your teacher in this situation. Yeah. Interesting. Um, this is going to sound like a weird question. What's your first memory of music? My first memory, not other people's memory. Okay. Your earliest uh, memory of music, either hearing it or making it. My, my, my first vivid memory is, is, uh, um, coming home from kindergarten graduation after hearing Pomp and Circumstance. And I just knew how to play it with both hands. And I had my brother come over and work the pedals because I could, I would just try as best I could to be like, just hold it down and let up. And I played Pomp and Circumstance. I picked it out. It took me a few minutes, but I knew how to play it. And that, and I just remember that old player piano that barely could hold a tune in the basement being the first time I discovered like, wow, this makes sense to me. And I remember also like beginning to, you know, doing lessons, immediately going into lessons and it being so cold in that basement that I'm trying to practice with little mittens on. You know? Wow. So, so yeah, you, could, but, you could play by ear. You, you realized, oh, I can, I can figure this out. 
and play it. And you were and you were so short that you had to have your brother hold the pedals because. Well, I mean, I was six years old. You were six. I was six wow. years old. It was kindergarten graduation. But the thing is, it became very difficult at the time at later on because you know I ended up. I ended up having a classical piano, like a full scholarship for classical piano to Vanderbilt University as a pre-college program. So sophomore, junior, and senior year, I was doing college-level classes against my degree later on at Vanderbilt under a pre-college program they created. And so to learn to read was very difficult. And, I, and, and had I not had the right kind of teacher who realized that I was saying, hey, could you play that for me before we go? And, uh, you know, and then I would just go home and I would uh, pick it out by ear. Right. So you would, so, you would kind of sneakily ask him to play it first so you could hear it. And that's how yeah. you're going to put it together as opposed to reading yeah. music. What yeah, about and, and, you read? And, how do you do you read music well, now? But then, but she, well, the 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 remedy was she started to give me a tonal music to where you cannot find the tonal center at all. Oh, that so, little that sneaky uh, little oh, sneak. It was it was brutal. I still to this day hate atonal music, right? Um, classical music, but at the same time, listen, that's what worked. Yeah, and it's funny because I've just fallen so far back on on that ear now that like if you asked me to read a hymn book, I would probably struggle. You know, interesting. It's it's been that long. That's amazing though. Um, I saw the movie Rocket Man about Elton John, and he the scene of him on the piano when he's so young, and they're like, "Holy shit, he can do that!" It sounds kind of like that was what your story was. What a fun movie that was! Oh, it was so way. fun, right? Yeah, yeah it was yeah. delicious. Um, you write in your bio about working with Brenda Lee, the singer. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. were you, were you touring? What, how, what, in what capacity? How did that come about? My mom was a huge fan of Brenda Lee growing up. And in 1981, she went to the arena here in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, and wanted to meet Brenda Lee. Wow. And, uh, by some sort of fluke she had a friend who knew how to get back there they met and my mom took back this book that she had been collecting for years of all of the interviews the articles and everything that that she had saved ever since she was a kid and brenda and her just hit it off and they began to see each other at like the country music association and other places in nashville well when brenda saw me this little toe-headed kid uh and and heard me sing as you know, from the prompting of my mother, she just kind of decided that she was going to allow me to see how she worked. And so she would take me on her tour bus in the summers and I would get to see her on stage and off class act. And, and what it did for me first and foremost was really demystified the entire idea of being a celebrity or entertainer because you see the day-to-day, the mundanity of it all. Yeah. And and the fact that she's, all she is, is just a very talented, hard worker. Yeah. You know? So you were, like, and shadowing so, her as a kid. Like I was. When, yeah. I, it was it, it, and, and, and even to this day, like, when I had my junior recital at the college that I was telling you about, I, she came and hosted it upon my request because she she had seen me grow into my musicality That's you know amazing. and i mean i got to see her last summer too when they uh, had her in the hall of uh, into the uh, country music uh, the the um uh, hall of fame that was happening last summer um yeah. and and seeing her again i mean so she's she's uh she's just had a huge influence on me and i think probably second to just the demystifying of the entertainment industry 
you know, because I'm seeing people like Ronnie Millsap and the Statler brothers and Barbara Mandrell and Reba Mac. Like I'm near all of these people backstage with her all the time. It just it becomes this non thing. Yeah, that you just realize, okay, this is this is their forte. This is what they do, and this is their job. And so I think that I've always seen entertainment as like, well, this is my skill set, right? And this is what I do, and and that's really that's it. That's what it is because she set that precedence. She set that tone. You right. know? Did you ever collaborate musically with her or play for her or anything? Or no, you... I wanted to, especially yeah. after I did that duet with Jerry Lee Lewis. I came home and I was like, why haven't I been able to pull that off with Brenda? Right. <laughs> I was like, why didn't you, you know, and, 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 I, and I started really thinking about it a few years ago. And then I was like, no, I don't, I, you know, she's, she, uh, she's not in a place to do that now, sure. I don't think. Um, what, what's the duet with Jerry Lee Lewis? You got to do it? Uh, the old song called Money. Yeah. Duet um, was on his uh, Mean Old Man album, but limited edition, only on the physical CDs, sold at the theater. And then they were selling them other places on the road and stuff. I don't know. But I mean, I have I have a few copies left, but it's, it's a whole album of duets. There's a lot of, well, yeah, every song has a, a special guest. And so I was... I was in good company for that album. Yeah, nice. what was it like to collaborate with him like that? Well, we were separate. Yeah. So I had uh, he had already recorded his part, right. um, and I had to come in and just knock mine out as well and make it sound like we were in the same room together. There you go. Well, that's because you're a pro. When did you first realize you were good at music? Like, oh, I could do this for a job. This isn't just a hobby. Oh, well, I'm hesitating because I'm always... I, I'm, <laughs> I hate it when people say this, but I'm just like, I, I, I'm, you know, I constantly judge myself. And so it's like, I hate listening to the stuff I've released. Um, I'm, I'm never fully satisfied. So I'm so consumed in this reaching, reaching, reaching to get better right. energy that, that, I, that, 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 that question makes me really have to stop and think, when can I make a living off this? You know what? The first album review that I read on November 28, 2005, just three weeks after I had been on The Apprentice and there was someone who had read my $200, who had listened to my $200 CD. And all of a sudden, you know, I I don't care who you are when you, when you have that first review, you know, music is subjective. So like it's, you know, but at the same time, when, when you begin to hear someone who deems themselves as an authority on reviews, listen to your your creative musings and, 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 and interpret what they're hearing. Like that's still a milestone in your world, right? right? I mean, you, you can't help but like be impacted by that. Of course. Just looking at the sentences going, Oh, this is like a music review. Oh, they're talking about me. That's my (laughs) song. It just feels legit in a way. Um, I, I felt like that. I think, I think what gave me permission to do it was finally telling my story. And the fact that when I showed up with songs about the relationships with other men, when I showed up at Southern Baptist Sissies, when I, you know, when HX magazine in New York was writing about like the relationships that I was having in these songs with these other guys, like that was the permission, like finding who I was and finding that I had brothers who understood what I was talking about and I wasn't alone. That, that fueled the permission. That was, that was the reason to, to speak. Yeah. To keep going. That was the reason to speak. Yeah. Did you ever consider doing something else? Like, screw this. I'm going to go become a scientist 
right. Well, no, I mean, I'm pretty confident that there's not much else I can do as good as what I can do with music and sure. acting. But I mean, I'm, I'm very much not in love with like the entertainment industry in general. Right. I, I just, I think it's a super, super hard life. And, uh, and there's not a year that goes by that I don't think, well, my skin can't get any tougher that something happens and you realize, oh, fuck. Okay, well, now I'm tough. I guess, you know? I guess it's going to have to get tougher. <laughs> I, I know. It, it's, just, it's, it's just the, 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 the gift that keeps on giving. Aware, <laughs> you know? I, I so, relate to that so much, but I picked it. I picked it. You know? I picked it, yeah, yeah. So yeah but, but I just wouldn't wish it on anyone, and yeah. I think that there's a... I'm embarrassed. It's, I, I have, I'm embarrassed when people say, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm in entertainment. And I think that uh, I have to correct myself and realize, like, no, I've made an effort to to try to be helpful and healing through music as much as I can, even though I think that these people who are going out and saving lives are on the forefront of this of this pandemic, who are, are firefighters and people who are actually actually putting their lives on the line every day, it seems so vapid for me to say I'm an entertainer, but at the same time. You know, I guess we we all have to just use our voice for whatever we can, right. you know, and I know that's mine. I certainly have no doubt that that's my voice. You know, I, I think music, especially of all the arts, especially music, can help people process and deal with their emotions in a very mm-hmm. visceral, immediate way. And that's a huge gift to give to the world. Even just playing it earlier, listening um, and my roommate said, oh, I love that. It makes me feel good. And I was like, yes, see, like mm-hmm. e- e- even just a, a little comment like that is like what you do matters. Um, I've gotten into meditation recently in a bit. Is there Mm -hmm. something meditative about being a musician? Because when you're doing it, you have to be in that moment. You can't, you know, you you have to be in that moment. You can't, I guess you can be thinking about, I'm going to go wash the car later, or I had a big fight last night, or I don't know how to make a living. But I think if you're going to do it well, you can't be thinking about the past or the future. Am I right? I love, love, love that. Because what a great comparison. And I use this comparison to talk to younger creatives behind me that are coming up and saying, this is, this is how you approach that creative muse that will always keep you from writer's block. It will always keep you from it if you can just sort of have approach it like you would meditation a full acceptance of this moment what's true in this moment no judgment in this moment what comes out is what comes out and you can leave it and then you can let it come out and leave it and go and that's that is such an important part of the creative process i love that i love that reference point that's that's good right yeah, but, that's, but it, that's exactly I think, what i would think it would be like yeah and as I mean, a meditator i can relate to that and also like doing the show on on broadway or any kind of show while you're in it you have to be in it so and then afterwards, yeah. I don't know. I think it's, I think it's probably a pretty rich life and a healthy life to have those periods of time where you have to be in the moment doing your thing. I'm about to go through that in October. I'm starting writing for new stuff, and and it's a new chapter for me because I've I've promised myself that I will be in total control of creating the record from the ground up. So I've I've bought the computer. I have equipment i have the ideas and i for the first time i'm going to really really be in solitude sitting there starting from the ground up from the beats to the bass to the piano to the guitar to the vocals to all the bells and whistles and i get to choose without the clock running paying by the hour without a producer to work with their personality like 
it is going to be the most intimate, sacred of spaces. And I can't wait to see what comes out having that kind of freedom. I've never had that kind of freedom. Interesting. You've never made a record in that way before. It was all not the full record where I've done it all. No. Oh, fantastic. That's going to be awesome. Um, I have one more question for you, but first I want to make sure we promote everything we want to mention. Um, yes. You, LeviChrist.com is your website. We've got these yes. three concerts coming up, um, September 20th, October 18th, and November 15th. Is that right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and there's is... a little members section to the website that that's where uh, in January I'm launching an a great experience for people who, who want to be a part of a membership there. I mean, there's going to be so many experiences to have, but for now, that area is where you can get tickets in the member section of LeviChrist.com. I love it. And I was trying to figure out the time zones to those concerts. What time would it, what time are they? Five Eastern. Five but, Eastern. Uh, so if your listeners are Pacific, yeah, so. um, well, I wanted to make it early enough also where in the UK they could watch it yeah. before bed, you know? So it, it's a good time slot to reach both yeah, directions. It's a little it. early for LA, but, but, uh, you yeah. know what? If the time slots don't work for people, the 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 concert stays on the, my private website, uh, my private page for five days to watch at your convenience until it is permanently deleted. Because I don't want this to be something that's shared on other social medias or anything. I want it to be a unique experience to you because you're there and you paid for the ticket. So it's there for people to see for later, but it'll be gone in, like very shortly after. Well, you know cool. I, mean? I look forward to seeing them. I'm so glad you're doing them. I'm so glad you've been doing these little mini concerts. They've really given me a boost during this time. Um, what's your social media? Are you on Instagram or Twitter? Facebook.com slash Levi Christ. Yeah. Instagram. Everything is at Levi Christ. Perfect. You got your name yeah. right. Um, yeah. I'm so glad we made this happen. I've been such an admirer of yours for so long. Um, final question. Careers like yours go through ups and downs. What got Every you through career. What yeah. got through you, what got you through your downs? A need to heal. It's like that little boy who still wanted to do gospel music from the time I was a kid. I'm not doing gospel music. I'm not in a church. I'm not doing any of those things, but for some reason I still feel like I just want to use music to heal. All right, Levi. Um, thank you so much. This has been great. Right. And thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you, bud. Bye. Thanks again to Levi Christ for making the time and doing the interview. You could check out all his stuff at LeviChrist.com. And hopefully I will see you at one of his virtual concerts. All right. So this happened. Um, we are going to do a mismatch game on Zoom. Um, We've been doing these shows for 15 years on stage uh, at the Gay and Lesbian Center as a benefit. It's a parody of the old Match Game TV show, and we decided we're going to try to do a Zoom a Zoom uh, weekend. So on September 26th and 27th, Saturday and Sunday at 8 o'clock, we're going to do these shows. And we have a lot of our regular cast members. We'll have updates about who's doing which show. But I just wanted you to save the date. We're going to figure out how it's going to work. I'm going to be doing my Gene Rayburn thing from the privacy of my own house and um, hopefully have some fun and have some laughs. So we're excited. All right. That's enough for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.